Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're going to turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 2, and uh, we're reading the whole chapter t- together. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find the reading on page 45, and then over into page 46, Exodus chapter 2. Last week, we looked at Exodus chapter 1, and we saw that God is the God who wins internationally, nationally, and locally. And this morning, we're turning to some stories about Moses, his early life, and then another story uh, and another, uh, uh, other events that happened later in his life. So Exodus chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, and we're reading down to the end of the chapter. This is God's word to us. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe, bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to fill their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When when they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the, and, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. 
and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 2. And as you're turning that chapter up, uh, let's pray for a moment together. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us to do what we have just been singing. We pray that you would help us to be still. It has been a busy and distracting week. A lot has captured our attention, taken up our time. But we pray now that you would help us to focus and to be still as we look at your precious word. We pray that you would come by your spirit and speak to all of our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On the 1st of September this year, a former heavyweight boxer called Ernie Shavers died. He was widely regarded as the greatest single punch hitter in one of boxing's most celebrated eras. Shavers was described as chunky and shaven-headed. He never quite made it to the top of the boxing world. He pushed an aging Muhammad Ali to the brink of defeat and was one punch away from winning the World Boxing Council crown. Despite his lack of visible success, Shavers was known for his power. He was said to be capable of unscrewing bolts with his bare hands. He said of himself, I firmly believe I'm the hardest puncher ever born. People, people may be able to match me with their best shot for one of mine, but every one of mine has got killer written on it. Having missed out on a championship victory in 1979, Shavers never performed in the top tier of boxing again. He ended up fighting rising stars of the sport. And one of those rising stars was called Randall Tex Cobb. And Cobb is credited with the immortal line, Ernie Shavers could punch you in the neck and break your ankle. Ernie Shavers could punch you in the neck and break your ankle. Shavers finished his career with a record of 74 wins, 68 by knockout against 14 losses and a draw. He went toe-to-toe with the best, was reliant on his power and strength, but he never quite reached the top. The, the, the opening chapters of Exodus tell us about another fight, another battle, another occasion when someone believed that they were the strongest. In Exodus 1 and 2, Pharaoh thinks that he can go toe-to-toe with God but his plans get a knockout blow in chapter two. Ernie Shavers could punch you in the neck and break your ankle. Pharaoh could plot and plan and kill and destroy, but God can and does frustrate the plans of the wicked. And that's what we see in Exodus two. Having seen that God wins internationally, nationally, and locally in Exodus one, our attention is is drawn to more specific events in the land of Egypt. Exodus 2 zooms in on an Israelite family living under the oppression of Pharaoh's rule. And what we're going to see in this chapter are details about the son of this Israelite family. The son who will eventually lead his own people out of Egypt. 
But we're also going to see more of who God is, of how he is at work, and of how he cares for his people. As we said last week, Exodus is the gospel in the Old Testament in that it clearly points us forward to the Lord Jesus. The, the movement of the book is significant in that it begins with slavery, God's people suffering under the crack of the Egyptian whip, and it ends with freedom, with God's people worshipping him in a tent-like dwelling. In chapter 2, we're introduced to one of the most significant characters in Exodus and the whole Bible. We read of Moses' birth and the first 80 years of his life in this passage. And what we're going to see is that despite being and knowing that he is God's deliverer, he is a flawed deliverer. He isn't the perfect deliverer, the perfect rescuer, the perfect savior. In that way, we're going to be pointed forward to Jesus. Let's look at this passage together then. We're going to think about three things this morning. We're going to think about the boy who lived, the man who learned to lead, and the God who knew. The boy who lived, the man who learned to lead, the God who knew. Let's begin with our first point, the boy who lived. Look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife and a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. The context of what we read here comes in verse 22 of chapter 1. Pharaoh has issued a murderous decree. Every son that is born to, Hebrew, to, to the Hebrews is to be cast into the Nile. Pharaoh was worried about the Israelites flooding Egypt, and so he decides that their youngest must be killed. But during these difficult and dangerous times, a young couple dared to marry and dared to start a family. They were blessed with the birth of a son, but he was born under a death sentence. He lived for three months and was undetected, but it, would, but, but it came to the point where his mother and father could hide him no more. What's notable about verses 1 to 3 is that his father and mother aren't named. Later in Exodus, we'll learn that they were Amran and Jochebed. But for now, they're anonymous. Ordinary people who fear God more than any man. Their child lived for three months and was undetected, but it came to the point where his mother and father could hide him no longer. The hassle was too great. The crying was too much. Their bins were full of nappies. The questions from other people were too many. So just like the midwives of chapter 1, these parents are involved in some creative disobedience. The child is put into a basket which is made of bulrushes and is covered with bitumen and pitch. The, the, the word for basket in the original Hebrew is teba, and that literally means ark. The only other time this word is used in this, is, is in the story of Noah. J just like Noah before him, this little boy is, is placed into an ark. In verse 3, there's a, a deliberate contrast at play. The child's mother put the child in it, the basket, the ark, and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Pharaoh wants all of the baby boys to be thrown into the Nile. This mother carefully places her baby boy into the Nile. God is at work here. He's raising up nobodies to thwart the plans of darkness. He's He's sending a saviour for his people. The, the, Lord's hand in, uh, uh, the, the Lord's hand in the birth and survival of this child but it becomes clear as we read on, verses 4 to 10. The, the child is pushed down river. 
His sister keeps an eye on what's happening. And incredibly, Pharaoh's daughter, the daughter of a somebody, spots the basket. She opens it. There's a baby crying. Verse 6. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. The child's sister, eagle-eyed and thinking on the spot, says, Will I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to, to look after the baby? And Pharaoh's daughter says, Good idea. And who does the child's sister call for? His mother. Her mother. And Pharaoh's daughter is happy with the arrangement and, and pays the child's mother to look after, his, to her, look after her own son. And this is all God's doing. He's, he's quietly working, quietly working to, to raise up a saviour for his people. The, the child isn't named until verse 10. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. And Moses is the boy who lived. The boy who lived despite Pharaoh's murderous decree and the boy who was raised by his own mother in Pharaoh's household. The irony is almost too great. God is is having the last laugh here. He, He is thwarting the plans of evil. He is using nobodies to stop somebodies. Pharaoh's plan A was to beat the Israelites into submission with the rod of slavery, but God frustrates his plans. Plan B was to have Israelite baby boys killed in secret, but God frustrates his plans. Plan C was death by drowning in the Nile, the final solution, but God frustrates his plans. God has the last laugh and his saviour is born and raised in the very court that decreed that he should be killed. Moses is the boy who lived. He's the boy who lives because of the sovereign hand of God. God protects this child because he is his chosen deliverer. Having read about the boy who lived, the next part of chapter 2 tells us about an incident that happens when Moses has grown up. The boy who lived became the man who learns to lead. That's our second point. Verses 11 to 22 show us that when Moses had grown up, he was by no means the finished article. We read about a crime that Moses commits and the consequences he faces He leaves the palace one day and comes across an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He checks right and left, up and down, and then he kills the Egyptian. And he thinks that he's got away with it. But the day after, Moses comes across two of his own people fighting, and he tries to stop them and says, and they say, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And realizing that his crime is now public knowledge, he flees to the land of Midian. Now what's going on here? Acts 7.25 tells us that when Moses killed the Egyptian, he was acting in obedience to a divine vocation as he understood it. He saw himself as God's appointed deliverer. That's why he kills the Egyptian. But humanly speaking, when Moses took the law into his own hands, he put God's program back 40 years. His murder of the Egyptian slave master was stupid. It was completely ill-advised and it was never going to liberate God's people. His attempt to sort out a dispute between two of his own people only provoked them as well. They rightly turn on him and say, we have seen enough killing. Why should we trust another killer? His action was doomed from the start. He thought that he could conceal the murder, but his crime was discovered. And when Pharaoh heard about it, he tries to kill Moses And this is Satan chasing God's man, 
But God holds back the punches and keeps Moses safe. In verses 11 to 15, we're told that Moses had a lot to learn if he's ever going to be God's deliverer. As we read on, though, we find that God is at work in Moses' life. God is still working despite Moses' sin. Verse 15, Moses goes on his own personal exodus. He goes to the land of Midian, and there God changes and shapes him into the man who will lead. He goes from a killer to a servant leader. The writer of Psalm 77 recalled how God led his people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. One day Moses will will lead Israel like a shepherd leading sheep. He's prepared for this great task by being a literal shepherd leading real sheep. And from the moment Moses goes to Midian, God is is working to change him into a man who can lead his people. Notice the anecdote about Moses and the seven daughters of the priest of Midian. He delivers them. They were attacked by some shepherds, but Moses stood up and saved them. Verse 17. Now notice the difference here. He kills an enemy in verse 12. He doesn't kill an enemy in verse 17. God shapes Moses to be a servant leader rather than a vicious tyrant. Moses also marries and starts a family in Egypt. Verses 21 and 22 tell us about that. And again, God's preparing Moses to lead. And then there's his son. He becomes a father. Moses marries Zipporah and they have a son and they call him Gershom. Moses explains his son's name by saying, I have become a sojourner in a foreign land. The, the, the meaning of Gershom is unclear, but, but through the explanation Moses gives, he's saying this. He's saying that he has come home. Moses is enjoying rest and peace in his promised land. This is his personal exodus. Despite Egypt being the place of his birth and upbringing, Moses now sees it as a foreign country. The best explanation of what's going on in Moses' mind and heart comes from the Bible itself. Listen to Hebrews 11, 24 to 27. It says, by faith, when Moses, but by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than... He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Do you know, we face the same choice as Moses. Every Christian is in the same situation. After we have been saved, rescued, delivered, the land of our birth and the land of our upbringing becomes a foreign land to us. We're now pilgrims heading for the promised land, the home that is kept for us in heaven. And every day we have to make a decision. Which home will set our priorities? Which home will will set the direction of our life? Which home will shape our behavior? Which home will define our standard of living? Will it be the pleasures of sin and and the treasures of Egypt Or will it be ill-treated along with the people of God? Will we choose disgrace for the sake of Christ? Here's the choice in simple terms. Will you live for pleasure and treasure? Or will you live in disgrace? Would you rather be a somebody? Or would you rather be a nobody? 
Moses goes with option two and nobody, he chooses the disgrace. Why? Because he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. His faith meant that he didn't fear the king. Just like the Hebrew midwives in the previous chapter, just like his mother and father. How then shall we live? By looking to the home that God has promised and by fearing God more than men. Those are the lessons Moses learns in the wilderness. Those are the lessons Moses takes to heart. He is the boy who lived. He is the man who learned to lead. But ultimately, this chapter in this book is not about a man. It's about God. And chapter 2 tells us about the God who knew. It tells us about the God who knows. It tells us about the one who knows everything. The end from the beginning. And it tells us about the one who cares for his people. As we said at the beginning, this chapter covers 80 years of Moses' life. 80 years is just covered in, in 22 verses. But look at how the chapter ends. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. The camera in the helicopter takes us from Midian back to Egypt in these verses. And an awful scene greets us. The Israelites are still in slavery. There's, there's 40 years of suffering between verse 22 and 23. The Israelites need Moses to return. They're still in slavery. As much as Moses may have wondered what God was doing in his life during those years that he was in Midian, Imagine how the rest of God's people felt. Year after year, they experienced the crack, crack, crack of the whip in the hot, sticky sun. But God's people did something. Do you see what they did? They groaned. They cried for help. They cried for rescue. What did they do? They prayed. Their sufferings are so great that all they can do is cry out to God. And at this point in Exodus... Moses steps aside, out of the way, and God takes center stage again. God is ready to deliver his people from bondage. He is going to act for their salvation. And we know that because of the verbs in verses 24 and 25. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. God is really going to do something. He isn't sitting far away with his feet up. When people pray, God responds. He sees, he hears, he remembers. He doesn't remember sin. He remembers his covenant of grace, his, his unbreakable promise of salvation. This covenant is God's love relationship with his people, his eternal promise that, that we will be their God and we will be his people. And he also knows. The chapter ends by saying, and God knew. He knew all about what the Israelites were facing and we get the sense that God has an intimate, personal acquaintance with all of the details of their suffering. Do you know, this is so deeply encouraging if you follow Jesus. Israel was known as the covenant community. In New Testament times, in our time, the church is known as the covenant community. The God of the covenant, the God who sees, hears, and remembers, is the God who knows our situation. He knows what you're facing at the minute. He knows about the sadness in your heart. He knows about the challenges at home. He knows about the pressures on your time. He knows all about it. 
And he's the God who's worth praying to, who's worth talking to. He hears all of our prayers, even when they're little more than a groan. He remembers that we belong to him by his covenant, by his love relationship, by his eternal promise to us in Jesus. And having remembered, he hears our prayers and answers. Not always in the way that we hope or even in the way that we expect, but always in a way that brings him glory. He's the God who knew. He's the God who knows. Are you depending on him? Are you leaning into him? Are you relying on him? Exodus 2 tells us about the boy who lived, the man who learned to lead, and the God who knew. The God who knows. Now, we can't look at this chapter and talk about this chapter and think about this chapter without moving forward to what we have revealed to us in the New Testament. Later on, later in the big story of the Bible, we know that God raises up another saviour for his people. And it's another baby boy. And it's another miraculous birth. And when the child is named, he's called Jesus. Why is he given that name? Because he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus is the boy who lived. There's a striking parallel between Moses and Jesus. When Moses was a child, he lived under the threat of Pharaoh's murderous decree. When Jesus was a child, he fled from the promised land to Egypt because of Herod's murderous decree. Jesus had a personal exodus just like Moses, and he returned to the promised land after Herod's death. He became strong and was filled with wisdom. He lived a perfect life, unlike Moses, until finally he suffered on the cross, until finally he died an atoning death. The boy who lived in the New Testament became the man who died. And his death, and by his, his death, he achieved our salvation. The cross of Jesus Christ is God's knockout blow, his final punch, his final triumph over evil. And that's who this chapter points us to. We can't read it without thinking of Jesus. So are you trusting him? Have you been rescued by him? Have you trusted in God's saviour, God's deliverer, God's rescuer? If you haven't, let me finish by speaking to you for just a moment. The most notable part of the story for you is the bit where the two Israelites reject Moses as their deliverer. Strange bit, but we know it. We mentioned it a moment ago. Two Israelites are fighting, and Moses comes to sort it out, and they say, no, 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 we don't want you. Here's why that's the most notable part of the story for you, if you're not a Christian. It's because the people who want to be rescued don't want to be rescued by God's rescuer. Let me say that again. The people who want to be rescued, the Israelites, don't want to be rescued by God's rescuer. It might just be that you're a little bit like that. You want to be rescued. You want to be a Christian. You like the idea of being a Christian. But all this Jesus stuff, well, you're not prepared to accept it. You're not prepared to trust him. The Israelites in the story want to be rescued by other means. They want to do it themselves, sort it out themselves. They definitely don't want to go down the path of disgrace that Moses ends up on. And you might be the same. The path of disgrace that Moses ends up on has another name. Jesus calls it the narrow path. And what Jesus says is that it's the only way, the only road we can take 
if we want to know God. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, but you like the sound of being a Christian, but you're not prepared to trust in Jesus, ask yourself this, how much do I actually want to be rescued? How much do you actually want to be rescued? Answer that question in your heart and the answer will tell you where you stand in spiritual terms. How much do you actually want to be rescued? A little bit? You could take it or leave it? A lot? Or so much that you would do it now? Well, don't delay. Jesus is the only way for you to know God's salvation. Trusting in what he has done on the cross, walking the narrow path of disgrace, is the only way to know him. Exodus 2 tells us about the boy who lived, the man who learned to lead, and the God who knew. And it points us to Jesus, God's ultimate deliverer, his only rescuer, the only one who can save us. Will you trust him today? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in the Old Testament we see shadows of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that that is the case in Exodus chapter 2. We thank you for all that we've looked at this morning, but we thank you most of all that Exodus 2 points us to the sufferings of our Saviour. We pray that you would help those of us who have followed him and who have trusted him to continue to walk the narrow path of disgrace, knowing that though we may face disgrace here on earth, we will, we will share in glory in eternity. And Father, we ask that you would do a work in the hearts of those who haven't yet trusted in Jesus. We pray that those who don't know him would ask themselves, do I really want to be rescued? And if the answer is yes, if it is the deepest cry of their hearts, we pray that they would turn to Jesus for the first time. Father, we thank you for your word. Bless it to all of our hearts. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.